session. Podcast Artists. The production of this podcast was made possible by the kind support of the Dorotheum. Welcome to today's podcast with artist Delaine Lebas. Delaine, thank you very much for taking the time during the installation to talk about your work. Thank you. Very happy to be here at the session for the exhibition. It's so great to have you here. So looking forward to the opening. My name is Bettina Spör. I'm a curator at the session and work with Delaine on this exhibition and the accompanying publication. I would like to give just a very short introduction on Delaine. Delaine Lebar is a British artist currently living and working in Worthing, a coastal town in West Sussex. She studied there at the West Sussex College of Art and Design and later from 1986 to 1988 at St. Martin's School of Art. She works in many media and in a transdisciplinary way. She combines visual, performative and literary practices to create an artistic oeuvre that encompasses all areas of life. In her works, she deals with many facets, political as well as private and emotional, which involve belonging to the Romnia people, their history and rich cultural heritage. This exhibition at the session is not the first time Delaine Lebas shows her work in Austria. In 2011, she and her late husband Damien Lebas presented the installation Safe European Home with a question mark as part of the program of Wiener Festwochen on a very prominent site of the city in front of the parliament. The installation dealt with issues such as Roma Holocaust, racism, displacement, forced nomadism, unequal access to education, inadequate humanitarian rights and their impact, and in general about how we deal or how our societies deal with the minorities. For the session, Delaine conceived new installation with the title Incipit Vita Nova, Here Begins the New Life, A New Life is Beginning. The opening is in three days, which means Delaine, together with her partner Lincoln Cato and our team, are still in the middle of setting up what had been planned and prepared during the last month. Delaine, thank you for taking the time for this podcast in the middle of installing your work. I know this is kind of also interrupting it, but maybe also a welcome break. Let's take this work as a starting point and talk about the various elements, strategies, references, media and collaborations that are characteristic for your work. I think in this work at the session, we have everything that you are known for, but still there are some things that developed and are different and maybe also new to your work. So let's explore. And maybe uh, you can tell us what was the initial idea or what is your vision for this exhibition? Well, I create a lot of installations, but this really is a sort of a step on from a lot of the installations I've created previously, because I feel like we've sort of really tried to take over the space completely. So really thinking about the architecture and where the space lies within the actual building and what we could do with that and how we would place the work within that and how it would interact with each other really and to change the space because I have this feeling that sometimes if you're not careful that you can go into a space and because you know the space so well if you revisit a space often that the space can overtake the work in a sense. So it's like to try and break that in some sort of way as well, to make it a different sort of experience as well, coming into the space. Maybe let's take our listeners to a, a mental journey. And could you describe 
the different stages. I mean, there's like, a, it's a parkour, it's a scenography that uh, has been laid out, laid out in the gallery. Can you give a visual image of what expects the visitors? Well, it's a journey because I've been on a journey myself over the past, just over a year. So it's a, that's what I'm trying to do is take people through different elements to something else. So it's the first room is about reflection in a different way. And also you can see yourself, but also you can't see yourself. And there's other elements within that room as well that relate to um, my late grandmother, who sadly died last summer, actually, and uh, last August. And so there's elements in that room in particular that relate to her. There's a horse That is a, a representation, it's not a copy, it's a representation of a horse that was my grandfather's that was in a, a cabinet that was in the direct, it was a glass cabinet. So it was this glass cabinet with a mirror at the back of it as well. So that's also to do with the reflective surfaces. And this black horse was in direct eye line of where my grandmother sat every day and underneath this horse was the a pair of red felt boots that were my first shoes that I ever had. And she looked at that every single day in this room. I was very close to my, my late grandmother. She was more like my mother than my grandmother. So it's been quite a difficult time for me. And so the room is about that. And then you come into another room, which is, um, I call it chaos. <laughs> and it was a performative piece that I did when I was doing my residency at Wising uh, Art Centre, where most of the, the work for this exhibition was actually Uh, made, even though I conceived some of the ideas before, but it really formed in the space there. Also because the space there doesn't have any natural light coming into it. So that's also when people come into the space, you're going into a space that doesn't have any natural light. So the fact that the space is sort of underground anyway, we just decided to completely go with that in terms of, of a sonography in a way. Um, so it's quite cavern-like. It's a bit like going into some sort of excavation, really, of something. And so this, this next space is called Chaos, and it was about how can you make art in chaos and when someone is dying? Because uh, I was thinking about this a lot last summer in a one of the hottest summers we've ever had and I was spending a lot of time with my grandmother in the heat and she was dying but I was also with her during the night so this is also this idea of only having artificial light or no light at all basically in the space and the shadows and everything else so there's a lot of work there's a lot of work in it that's about those type of things as well and then the last room you come into is bigger and different and lighter and it's about some sort of ascension really in a way and about you know how can we lift our spirit to a better place which in the times we're in is like a difficult task for many people in all different parts of the planet and but it's got references to a lot of historical references in it as well with Pythia and the oracle and know thyself Yeah, I think we, we can uh, talk about the motives and the visual vocabulary in a bit. I would like to still stay a little bit with the the space because you really occupy this space and you found a strategy to make this place your own, at least for the time of this exhibition. So there's this kind of you laid out the floor with a fabric Yeah, so the floor is completely covered in calico, which I've used before in exhibitions. I used it for Beware of Linguistic Engineering 
which was at Maxim Gorky in Berlin. Previously, it was in London and it had a different name, which <laughs> I think you are free to, um, to mention which was, the name. It was called, and it was called Sigourney Source when it was in London and it was called that for various reasons because then it, because Beware of Linguistic Engineering was in it and it was talking really about language and it was to do with the COVID situation and the government in the UK and everything which we now know they were doing which they said they weren't doing at the time and and the way that language was used and uh, I'm the, the whole idea around language and the reason I called it Zagoyna Source, it was deliberately provocative in a way because it's also, I've got this thing like, yeah, people stop using the word, but do they actually stop thinking the word? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you, know, you know, I'm sort of, I was playing with that idea with it. But the calico comes from a text by Decker, which talks about gypsy people in England, Egyptians, which is also, there's references to that in the show as well, because the word gypsy comes from the word Egyptian. It was shortened to Egyptian, then gypsy. And uh, he talks about the clothing and these calico garments. So I wear a lot of calico that I work in. And I usually put it on the walls, but this time we put it on the floor. But it's also, you know, the floor is an artwork in itself because there'll be a lot of traffic on the floor, but parts of the floor will obviously remain intact because there's certain things on the floor. So there'll be bits that remain pristine and other bits that won't. And so it's a reference to also being on the floor. Some people are on the floor and other people do just walk all over them and don't care. Okay, so it's a metaphor again. Yeah. And also artwork in the making. Basically, yeah. you lay out the floor now and you said today you will keep this material. I will keep the floor, yeah. And uh, it will become an artwork because it will have many traces of people walking. And as you said, you know, where there's objects now, it will remain clean. And so the calico now is on the floor. Uh, where often you use it on the walls, but on kind of you created walls and like tent-like structures or pavilions out of organdy. It seems your favorite material at the moment, uh, one that you also use for costumes. And I think this also brings us, because you mentioned already you wear a lot of calico, so this brings us again to St. Martin's and to your early, to your beginning, because you come from fashion and working with textiles and painting and embroidery was there from the beginning. So this is all quite interwoven in your practice. Is there any change now you use kind of uh, fashion in your work or kind of clothing in the form of costumes also there will be a performance at the opening where you made beautiful costumes for well I think in a lot of my earlier work I did a lot of embroidery and it was quite intense and it was quite small pieces of work and then I used also use a lot of reclaimed material materials in costumes and things so gradually I've developed more into getting costumes made so making drawings, and then I work with Kim Warren in Brighton, and she interprets, cuts patterns from the drawings that I make. And then um, I already make the fabric to start off with, and then these are now costumes. So that's something that has developed more and more. And the costumes are also painted, but they are painted afterwards? Or you no, paint they're painted f- before. I paint all the fabric beforehand, and uh, I usually work outside because I haven't got a studio. 
So the, the fabric is put on a washing line. So that's how they they sort of look the way they do because obviously that moves as well. So there's a lot of movement in the painting. Um, and I like the organdy because it works with the books that I work in, which have this, I work a lot on this sort of cross between tissue paper and tracing paper. So it has the same, for me, it was wanting to maintain the same look and the same sort of feel of the work, but it's, I've just blown it up. So the work is big. That's what you mentioned before, that kind of you, especially during COVID, but not only during COVID, you really drew a lot in your fantastically beautiful sketchbooks. And there is several books that you showed us that you made in the time, in the preparation for this exhibition, also thinking about it, also reflecting on the Beethoven frieze. It's so nice to kind of revisit or to, to meet kind of Tufois from, from the Beethoven frieze or like the Gorgons with a clear reference where they come from or like this kiss to the entire world, like the, the final scene mm -hmm. from the frieze in the books. But so there is this kind of engagement with the site on, on a very natural way. It's not forced. It just comes in naturally. Also, the Beethoven frieze is kind of neighboring your well, exhibition. It's the other side of the wall. It's the other <laughs> side of the wall. Yeah. It's a very prominent neighborhood. So, but this somehow kind of came naturally in, into the work as one minor aspect. It's not about it. But I think it also resonated with you because uh, you mentioned it before. There's like references or motifs from Greek mythology, from Egyptian times. And also kind of this, this is the period of time also Klimt referred to in, in the Beethoven frieze in some parts. So and I think is, does it, was it the reason why it entered the exhibition through the notebooks? Because There was like a familiarity. Well, there's a familiarity, but also I think within my work, you know, my work's always been political and sometimes more overtly political than that. This is political, I think, in a different way. It's still political, like the floor, for example, but also the fact, the times we're in, if we think about what's on the freeze, it, some of the things that it's actually talking about in terms of gnawing grief, for example, which a lot of people will be in gnawing grief at this second when we're talking in different parts of the planet for lots of different reasons that are going on. The planet's ignoring grief itself with what we're doing to it. So I think that those reference points for me were as valid. They're as valid today as they've always been at different times historically. It's uh, ongoing, really. And so in that way, it's there. And then it's like, you know, this idea, you know, a kiss to the world when well, we need to give the world a kiss because we need, we need to heal it. You know, I mean, we're, we're not doing a very good job of it so far. So that's the sort of the, the things that are there. And I, when I first saw it, you know, my, my site's got quite, my, my site's not as good as it used to be. And so, for example, when I saw poetry, I thought poetry was playing a laptop, not that you know, that ancient instrument that poetry is playing. Yeah, that was um, funny. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, there's, there's sort of references, there, there's references to that in, in the performance and this this text I wrote. So, yeah, th those are there. And again, it's the, the, so the politics are there as well, in a way, also, you know, about those type of things, but in different sorts of ways, yeah, different so manifestations. As we also heard before, I mean, it's kind of you, you did incredible many projects also uh, related to the Roma community. I think it's kind of you were in the first uh, Roma pavilion at the Venice Biennial. You and your late husband started the Roma Biennial in Berlin, 
which is, I think, uh, still ongoing. Yeah, we work with uh, Roma Tra and Hamza Batici, the Roma Biennial. That was, yeah, I mean, it was an idea of my late husband's. Fortunately, he knew it was going to happen, but unfortunately he died before we did the first one. So we've done two, we've done two of those so far. So this is a continued project, but not it doesn't happen every two year regularly. Yeah, I mean we had COVID, so it was COVID, quite, yeah, quite, yeah. Quite, quite complicated with everything. So it started in two thousand. Uh, it started in two thousand and eighteen. We did the first one. There's a lot of things within what I'm doing that are to do with what I did previously, but also you know I'm in a completely different position now. You know, my husband, my husband died very suddenly. And then my grandmother died last year and there's been a lot of fragmentation of family and things and stuff. And uh, it's just for me, I mean, uh, I've had to like, you know, it's like a map that was in front of me that didn't really exist. And I'm having to re-navigate where I sit with everything. Mm -hmm. Because when certain things happen, I think, you know, to anybody, it throws you and puts you in a different place. And you do think differently about things. I think Damien died in 2017 and you were married for more than 30 years, which is like, you know, one, it's hard to imagine how life feels after such a loss. Yeah, it was, you know, it was difficult because we, we worked together, but we didn't do everything together as well. So there was, but people knew us together. And it was very difficult for me to say, look, this is not, This is not, it can never be the same again because he's no longer here. So, yeah. So I think the show as well is a, it's a, I think it will be quite um, interesting to see people that know my work previously, how they feel about what they see with this, because it is very, for some people, I think it will be a massive change. <laughs> And often, because I noticed that uh, in, in previous exhibitions, often you, you, I mean, you work with text a lot, you write a lot, um, and it very often also is more visible in exhibitions. I mean, there's still kind of some text, some words, more slogans in this exhibition, but not bigger parts of text like you had previously. Or you also worked with newspaper covers, especially kind of the Brexit time is uh, very popular in this. In my observation, people, they you know, recognize work very often as more political when there is text involved. And as soon when the text goes or when the political issue becomes more visual or kind of more you know, translates more into metaphors and symbols, then it becomes unaccessible for, for people. And then they read a work more decorative or more from, from a visual or artistic point of view, but less from the political level. And I think from all these discussions that we have, I mean, it's kind of the injustice, the social problems, especially in England now, there's so much on your agenda. Well, it's still, like I said, it's still there in the work. I'm just taking it from a different, you know, I mean, that's what chaos is about. How do you work? How do you make art in chaos? I mean, we've been in chaos, you know, the whole COVID thing was chaotic, really, if we think about it. And it's, I don't know, you know, I mean, from a British perspective, we were told to get back on with it and be in the new normal. And I'm really sorry, you know, two years of what happened and everything that was around that is two years of your life. And life is very precious to everybody, to every single one of us, you know. And when you think about what else is happening to people in other parts of the planet, like every second is very precious. And when you have that taken away from you and you can't be with the people that you really love and you can't even be close to them, I mean, it's a, 
What, and you're just supposed to forget about that? So, you know, that's sort of the chaos. And then, the, you you know, you you come out of the other side of it. I think you have to reflect on it and you have to think about how you feel about that yourself and how you feel about being in the world now. So that's also, for me, that's what it's about. So it's political and it's personal at the same time. I suppose it's probably maybe more personal in some ways, but the politics are still there, but just in a different in a different way. They're not so it's not so overt, but I don't think it always has to be like in someone's face. And maybe this is a good moment to talk about the title because Incipit Vita Nova is like a Latin and you, you offered two kind of alternative translations with a different focus, like here begins the new life, more like the focus on the space. And a new life is beginning. But I think the essence is it's a new start. It's kind of also a time of introspection that is visible in the work, also in these different chambers in the scenography from like the, the first room where you get confronted with the mirror. And as you uh, described it before, um, you can see the, your reflection, but at the same time you can't see it. It's very blurred. Because it's it's a mirror foil and it's not a fancy mirror that we provided, but I think it is kind of it also dissolves the the space somehow, and that brings me to something that your installations, your work is almost always takes the form of an installation, right? Where so many different media techniques and also collaborations with other people form like one bigger entity in the end. And often one reads about your installations that they are fairy tale cell. And Stephen Alcock, who wrote the essay for the accompanying publication, he called this exhibition from the conversations you had beforehand as Borderland. And I really like it very much because Borderland also is this in-between land, in-between zone. It is in the in a space that is technically in the basement, so in the underground and I remember when you were here for the first or second visit that you referred to the Beethoven Frieze as a tomb and also to the, the gallery space around it. And I thought this like really interesting because nobody ever had commented on this in, in that way. And now we are a little bit in this kind of underworld and maybe now you can tell us a little bit about the mythological aspects in it because in the end of this parkour that you are creating at the moment there is Pythia like the the priestess and with kind of a message to us all in a way so but can you tell us a bit about this okay so I'll start, well I'll start a little bit about the so in Sipit Vita Nova it's Latin and uh, so but it's got obviously two translations so again this is the beware this is linguistics thing that I'm talking about Latin is still used most language still has Latin in it in the in Vatican City Latin is also I mean it's still spoken and it's used as an exclusionary I mean not everyone can speak Latin not everyone understands it in science and things like that they still use Latin a lot as well so again you know it's an, another language that is still present but not present as well. So it has that sort of thing going on. And the two different, here begins a new life and a new life is beginning, is how slightly how I feel myself. We're not in this moment in time, but even in the previous previous months leading up to the exhibition. So, yeah, and this, the being underground was the fact that I just realised that we were sort of semi-underground in the space. So it just made sense for me to go with that. Also, I suppose, because of 
my late husband dying, my grandmother dying. It's that, that's a borderland you're in. Like at night time when I was sitting up with my grandmother when she was dying, it's a different, it's a different world at night. Everything sounds different. Everything looks different. And there are people out there at that time of night when the majority of people are not there. So it's a different world. And the borderlands that Stephen talks about in the text are where so many people are. They're in this space in between. They're not in one space. They're not in the other. So that, again, is a, it's a political thing as well. I mean, if we just think about what's just happened recently, you know, with the... Oh, the terrible tragedy with all the refugees that recently died in the, in the, the boating accident and then all the coverage that the, the submersible has just had with the millionaires that were in it. There's a distance there between those two things and it's like what really is more relevant and what should we be trying to deal with and what should we really be trying to sort out. Look at the rescue mission that went into that. Look at the rescue mission that didn't go into the other. And so know thyself with Pythia being the oracle. And the oracle was there for a thousand years and people went to visit the oracle. But the one of the first things you saw was know thyself. So it's also like take some responsibility as well for being here and what you're doing and what's going on because we all have some sort of responsibility and we can all do something actually where we are. You know, I spent time in COP when it was in Glasgow with Aminga and basically they said, yeah, you could do things to help us, but start where you are. Do something where you are because it will make a difference. And I think that it's very easy to think, oh, I can't do anything about this. So I'm just going to let it like pass me by. But actually, we can all do something. Even the smallest thing is better than nothing at all. And that brings us to the Egyptians as well. You know, that's the way in the heart with the feather thing. That's where the green heart is. That's in the show. And it's about, it's not about, we can't be perfect. That's not part of the human condition. But have you done the best you can? No, we or have at to. Least try. We have or at to least try. try. Yeah. Or at least try, do you know? <laughs> I at least did some good deeds. <clears throat> and then the collaborations. I mean, you know, um, Lincoln, we've, we worked on Beware of Linguistic Engineering and Zagonosaurs together, creating the sonography for it in both spaces in London and in the Gorky. And so we've we've worked on that together. Also Lincoln's design sculpture furniture that's in this this exhibition as well. I've worked with Laszlo Farkas again on the film. Who I've I you know I've known Laszlo for some time now and he was in the first Roma Biennial with me. And also Justin Langlands who I work on the soundscapes with. I, we've we've got a long history of working on the soundscapes and things together. And Hera Santos um, who we we've we've done a lot of performative work together. So yeah, so we will be performing. And Hera was in the a lot of the photographs are in the publication and also in the film and stuff as well. Yeah, so and we work together on the styling of the costumes and stuff as well together. So you know, I, I most of my collaborations are long term with the people that I work with because I feel like it. We're we're all sort of embedded into the work slightly as well, and it just means that there's a flow to everything we do, even though it goes off, even though it's going off at different tangents. We sort of know each other enough and trust each other enough to just to just do whatever. There's a sort of freedom also. I don't sit on. I'm not, I'm not Justin's shoulders when he's making the soundtrack, and also the same with Laszlo when he's putting the films together. You know, I might do the filming and. We did the filming between us, me, Lincoln, and Hera did that between us. So then Laszlo took it and did whatever. 
So there will be two different soundscapes in, in the first yeah. room will be one and in the last room. Mm. Yeah. And the video will be in the first room projected yeah. on the floor. Can you give me an, because I haven't seen it because we're still kind of installing. What, what is the, what, what functions do they have? Like the soundscape is creating atmospheres, I guess. Yeah. The soundscape crea creating atmosphere and it's, it's relating to the spaces. There's familiar threads in the land, the soundscape in both rooms, but one is in the first two rooms and the other one is slightly, it's slightly has a different tone for the final room, just because of the way, you know, the first two rooms are predominantly black and white and the other room is colour. There is some black in it, but there's, there's, there's very little black in that, in the final room at all whatsoever. And so the idea was with the soundscape was to sort of lift, lift the sort of atmosphere as well as the, the color doing that and the light doing it. It's also for the sound to do it as well. Um, because I'm also trying to form this like encompassing thing that is the whole thing, the space, the work the sound, how you feel moving through the space as well, what that does. And the film is projected onto a, a sort of fake pool, in a sense. So it acts like a sort of mirage or a vision. Um, so that's going back to the Pythia thing as well. And the film is about new beginnings, but also trust. So in my drawings in the books, there's a lot of figures. For a long time, I've been drawing myself with like this horse head. <laughs> Um, I did it a lot after my um, my late husband died in the books I had from that time. And also, there's always been horses around me ever since I was a small child. So I'm sort of slightly obsessed with them. And they have these senses as well. You know, they have different sorts of, you know, their hearing's very acute and their sense of smell. So they rely on other senses as well. And so in the in the film, for example, and with the costumes, sometimes you don't know which one of us it is. There were supposed to be three of us to start off mm -hmm. with as well. And so the idea was that they was everything sort of interchangeable. And also there's a there's a horse head in it. So it's like at certain points, it's like I've been transformed into some sort of creature, which if we look at mythology, a lot of that happens. And people are often turned into mm -hmm. some sorts of creatures. And so therefore, it's like you're in the world in a different way. And I think that's also a metaphor for finding yourself somewhere else where you don't speak the language and nobody wants you there. And you're like, where am I? Like, where am I? And then you have to trust someone mm -hmm. or you have to trust whoever to maybe guide you in a good way and maybe enable you to be free in that new space you've gone into. So there's a, it's, it's sort of wrapped up in the mythology, but it's, mm -hmm. there's other things in it as well. So that's really what the film's sort of about, in a sense. So that's kind of all this, um, a lot of this mythological figures, or even that you created, uh, as you mentioned, just you with the horse head. Does this also come out of this? Because I think you have a huge library and you also um, dig uh, a lot into the history of not just the Roma, but also kind of, you know, you did a, an exhibition called Witch Hunt, I think, where you also did uh, a lot of research going backwards in time also in libraries or you know books the depictions of witches so is this kind of also connected to your huge interest in in the history of persecution of is it's also feminist topics you know how women have been treated over centuries 
Yeah, I mean, it's all, it, it's sort of, I have, a, I have a huge library myself. My son also, who's a writer, but he studied theology, but he's always, he's also really interested in ancient history. So I'm, and definitely the female figure, so like Medusa features in this as well. The idea, I mean, with Medusa, it's the fact that she's a woman wronged by a man and then wronged by another woman as well. So I'm, I'm also looking at who's wronging who and sometimes who gets away with it and who doesn't get away with it. And the witch hunt is an, sort of an ongoing, the, the persecution of the female and what that, that means and the legacy of what we live in even now because of it and how it's still going on. And the you know even the title actually comes from my my uh, a really old friend of mine uh john puddyfoe who i've known for many many years gave me a book on Aubrey beardsley and so the title actually comes from a drawing by beardsley and if we think about the time when beardsley was doing what he was doing which was probably just pre when secession was built actually and he died when he was 25 he had tuberculosis from when he was seven. But that title comes from one of his drawings. And, you know, they, he was sort of seen as being this sort of outsider and the work was what it was. And it was seen as being obscene, like a lot of Clem's work was as well. So also there's this ongoing thing about, you know, artists' work being put in certain things because sometimes because of what they're dealing with. So it's like you can also become an outsider because of the type of work. That you're making as well and so that again refers back to all these different characters in history in mythology even that were sort of these outsiders in a way because of what they looked like or what they were or what they've also been made into so there's also this idea like sometimes people are made into what they become not because that's who they are so there's a lot of there's a lot of layers to it really I suppose And I think also this to work with cliches or work against cliches and prejudices and stereotypes, uh, especially uh, also connected to Roma and Sinti, is something that one also finds a lot in your work to kind of find that really, in, I think, enrages you, that people are so stereotyped. Well, yeah, I mean, I find that um, possibly I don't, you know, that's the other thing with this show. I think that what I'm trying to do with the work as well, it's like I just want to make the work I want to make. And sometimes, yeah, it's very very overtly political and it's very much about this. But also sometimes I just want to paint what's in my head. And sometimes it just sort of appears. I mean, I just I talked to Stephen a lot about this with what I've sort of done for this, you know, like some of the characters in it. They're just characters that... I sort of created some time ago, actually, and the, the one of the figures with, like, the rabbit sort of head. I mean, that is something... I've been doing that figure for some time. I've been doing it. It was in it was in Universal Hospitality here. It was also in some work that I did, actually, in in Graz at Rota, because mm. I've worked there I as well. You, yeah. you know, I have to add, Universal Hospitality was the second time yeah. you were at the Wiener Festwochen, and I yeah. think it was in 2015. Yeah. Yeah, so some of the characters reappear. And they're they're always there there in the work. Yeah. Also in kind of safe European homes with question mark. Uh, there was already this the female silhouetted drawing with kind of two beads yeah. uh, high in the air. That's a depiction of yourself. That yeah, you do I mean a they're lot. always they're always me. The female figure is always me. I either draw around myself or someone else draws around me. And they're so they're a little bit 
they're a little bit strange in one way, but they're they're real because it's my form that's in there. Um, and yeah, I've been using that for a long time. I mean, I did them for Fabric of Myth. I did Compton Verney, which was, I think it was 2009. I might have got the date wrong. I can't juggle all the dates in my head. But that was when I did them. And I did them for, I'd done them for Witch Hunt previously as well. They were in that. So they've been going, they've been around for a long time now. And they just take different forms, really. But it's always me running, usually, mm. somewhere. <laughs> and so this this black rabbit or this rabbit is also kind of a figure that is running away? It's sort of, yeah, it's running or it's just like sometimes. And also the thing is with the rabbit in these, it's sort of its head slightly turning. So it's like looking at you because that was something that I started to do when I did the Herb Salon in Berlin, when I did Witch Hunt 3, actually, because I made another Witch Hunt. But the figures that I did in there, I made the faces turn around because usually they're in silhouette, but the faces were turning around and they were looking at you. So it was this direct gaze back. So it was forcing the gaze back as opposed to being in flight. Mm -hmm. running, you know? running away without yeah. turning. Yeah. Well, there's also another interesting figure in this exhibition, the Marley. And you said it kind of it's a figure from Charles Dickens' Christmas novel. Yeah. And this is again another very political reference because it's uh, an issue that one also finds a lot in your work, this issue about money and greed and capitalism and what it does to people and how it ruins everything. So Marley is, yeah, so Marley's in A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens and he comes back to warn Scrooge the other character in it, that if he doesn't mend his ways, if he just keeps thinking about money all the time and being a Scrooge, <laughs> that um, he'll end up like him, which is he'll end up in limbo, basically, dragging the chains and these chests full of money and stuff with him, but he will never be able to rest because he'll just be in limbo. So this this figure is like a ghostly type figure. And it's with reference to that because I know we look, we all need, I'm not stupid. I know we all need money to live. Well, I know that, but above and beyond a certain amount of money, I think it's, you know, and the issues I've had in the past months over this, have just, as far as I'm concerned, proved me completely right that some people, all they care about is money. They don't care about people. They don't care. They, the, the emotional attachment is just not there. It's just a completely financial money thing that people seem to be obsessed with. And, you know, it's cold comfort. It's, uh, you know, even my grandmother used to say, wants to be the richest corpse in the graveyard. But this again shows how kind of in the end, how loaded this exhibition is with symbols, metaphors, even in this political context, personal and very emotional as well. But also this kind of the topic of the ghost is some, is one that is kind of a recurrent motive in this exhibition. Also that you emphasize with this kind of painted silhouettes that will cast shadows on the walls. Everything is very transparent, see-through kind of very light objects or also kind of the the furniture that Lincoln Cato designed together with you it's mostly silhouettes so it also kind of it has this play with you know it's not kind of uh, like the vases where the flowers are in are just flat it's kind of it's decor like things you do for theater for the effect but also has, has this kind of ghost-like touch to it so that's not something that's hard to really grasp 
in a way that's always fleeing. It's kind of, I really, I like this way. I think this kind of the simplest and easiest and most lightweight way to create space and architecture by hanging fabric and creating a room. Well, the fabric is, you can see, it's quite transparent, but it still sort of blocks your vision slightly as well in one way. So it sort of has this double thing going on with it. It creates the shadows, but also because of the light, you become a shadow as well. So you or whoever's in the show is also part of the show in the reflective space and also with the, the shadows, basically. So whoever's in the work is actually part of the work as well at the same time. So it's thinking about those to sort of create that sort of effect as well. And then the idea of the buildings made, I mean, I've been making the, the soft structures for a very, very long time anyway. But it's also about the idea of precarity, which is something that me and Francesca Gavin talk about in the in the interview, in the publication as well. And it's like, we only see what remains because of the material it was made out of. We have no idea what else was created historically. We just don't know because so many things would have been made out of precarious materials. And I'm interested in using precarious materials in a way because these aren't pictures in frames. They're not canvases. They're bits of fabric that actually move and you can get quite close to. So that's precarious as well in a way because very often I've worked in I've worked in institutions and people said, oh, people are going to touch them and you're going to get like, you know, that, you know, people, the, the, your, the oils that come out of your skin are like a really detrimental to textiles. But for me, it's, I want people to be able to experience that in the work. I want it to be a different type of experience of walking through paintings. It's also addressing other senses again, not yeah. just the intellect, but also kind of the the sensory, the, the yeah. other senses, other senses, and making it multi-sensory in a way, really, as well. You know, or trying to as much as I can, you know, um, because there are other things that I wish were there as well. You know, it would be nice to do other things as well with it. So all the time, I'm trying to expand upon what it is that I'm trying to get across. So hopefully it's more accessible to even more people in a way, really. Thank you very much, Delaine, for this conversation and for taking the time for like interrupting the installation. Oh, that's fine. I'd just like to thank Secession. I'd like to thank the, the board for asking me to do the exhibition. And I'd like to thank everyone who works here for just their support and helping me make my ideas and my visions a reality because without the team here that wouldn't be possible uh, we thank you for doing the, this exhibition here and uh, also lincoln kato who's like really uh, a great supporter yeah these without lincoln it wouldn't be happening as well <laughs> And I would also like to point out that we did a publication, as we mentioned already, with a text and essay by Stephen Alcock and a conversation with Francesca Gavin. And like all our recent books, this will be available, of course, for uh, download on our website. And one can, of course, purchase the copy in the book or in our online shop. There is an artistic intervention, a silk screen print that came out of one of Delane's sketchbooks. And it's a nice addition to the publication when you get the real copy. Well, thank you very much, Delaine. Thank you, Bettina. Thank you for curating the show with me. It's, you know, it's, it was the greatest pleasure to work with you.
and have all these uh, fantastic conversations and to see now still it's not ready yet, um, but to see unfold the ideas that we talked about now in so many months and you described it and showed uh, sketches in the notebooks and now it becomes real and kind of it, yeah, it really unfolds in front of our eyes because it was literally two not very big boxes that contained all the painted fabrics and, you know, it's kind of a little bit like Alice in Wonderland and universe in a nutshell. Everything is now unfolding. <laughs> Thanks. Podcast Artists. The production of this podcast was made possible by the kind support of the Dorotheum.